Welcome to the We Wonder Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Schlachter, and this is the podcast where we talk about science, technology, and its impact on society. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to get new episode alerts. We're also on social media. On Twitter and Facebook, you can find us at We Wonder Podcast. You can also shoot us an email at feedback at wewonderpodcast.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Also, feel free to send us topic requests, guest requests, or do you know somebody that should be on the show? Let us know. We look forward to it. And now, let's kick things off. Welcome, everyone, to the We Wonder Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to talk about uh, biology and evolution and sociality and how uh, how how the the genetics um, impact um, our our social systems and our social structures and I'm here at Georgia Tech with uh, Dr. Mike Goodisman who is a professor who studies these things. So Mike, thank you for joining us today on the show. Great pleasure to be here. Looking forward to talking with you. Awesome. And so some of you may be wondering, like, what what does this have to do with our lives? Um, and we'll talk about the 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 reason why we study these kind of things, and we'll talk about um, you know how. Our, our social systems and society are, are, are underpinned by our biology and our genetics. Um, but first, I want to I ask uh, Mike about his, his background and, you know, tell us a little bit how you got here and, um, and what you study. Sure. So um, I grew up in Syracuse, New York, originally, and I did my undergraduate degree in genetics at Cornell University, which was great. And then I did my Ph.D. in uh, genetics at the University of Georgia. And that's when I first started working on uh, social insects because I saw them uh, for the first time when I came down here and they were so cool. My advisor was working on uh, fire ants and uh, to see them sort of moving around was so fascinating to me. So I did my PhD on social insects. And then after that, I did a postdoctoral research in Australia for a couple of years where there's all kinds of amazing uh, wow. social insects. Where species. in Australia was that? It was fantastic. So I was part of the time in uh, Melbourne, a okay. uh, beautiful city, and then part of the time in the north, uh, near in the tropical rainforest, um, off the Great Barrier Reef, uh, in a city called Townsville, and uh, there, that's just amazing, undiscovered that's, country for social insects, crazy so cool. termites, crazy bees, crazy ants. Lots of poisonous stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Everything <laughs> there is out to get you, whether it's you know poisonous snake or uh, or venomous ants that that sort of follow you and can sort of track you. There, everything out there is to get you. Wait, so when you, I know we're kind of digressing here, but when sure. you did that, did you have to like go out and get these insects in their their dangerous natural environments or? Yeah, so we did some collecting. I did some collecting of, uh, of termites. The species I worked on uh, has the cool name Mastotermes darwiniensis. And it's uh, one of the... It's kind of flows. It kind of flows. <laughs> it got the name Darwin at the end. And it's it's a really interesting species, very large okay. termite. That's an, also an agricultural and economic pest, which is why we were studying it. Okay. I also did some work actually when I was down there on invasive yellow jackets. So there are some invasive yellow jacket wasps that were introduced to Australia and New Zealand that are having sort of serious consequences. And then there's all kinds of amazing ants down there. Um, there are these uh, giant ants that they call inchmen because they're about an inch long and they have really nasty stings. And then there's in that same group, there's some ants that are called jack jumpers, which um, basically are an ant that can jump and will jump at you and towards you. Wow. And they have amazing vision, these ants. So they can actually, when you walk by their nest, they sort of follow you and watch you walking it's by. It's really creepy. It's totally creepy and they're I, terrifying. I don't think like... I don't think I, I don't think I, I don't think I think of insects like that, you know, like, I, like the way when you see a praying mantis, like looking at you, it, it gives you like this sense of intelligence that 
we don't typically have about insects. But the way you're describing these ants like would, would really creep me out. That's it, a really good point. And I, I think the more you work with them, the more you sort of start to see parallels, dare I say, and just amazing intricacies in how they behave, their social biology, what they do, you know, all their all these kinds of things. Hmm. Um, so okay. uh, Australia yeah, was Australia. great. That was fantastic. And then I spent uh, did enough, more postdoctoral research at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Oh, cool. And again, amazing, it turns out, amazing social insects out there, very diverse ant groups. And then I was hired here at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and I've been here for about 15 years studying various aspects of social biology, usually using social insects as model systems. Really cool, really cool. And so why? Why use, why use insects as a social system model? So there's a, I guess there's a couple of ways to answer that. I, I'll start personally, I guess. Um, I, I personally have always enjoyed working with insects, and mm -hmm. um, there's a... Uh, there's sort of uh, a survey that I, I heard was once done by a major um, entomology group, a group that studies insects about why people get into insects and how, how that sort of happens. Kind of a strange thing, right? And it turns out, I think, that a very large proportion of uh, individuals who got PhDs in entomology uh, tortured insects when they were younger. Oh, God. And it turns out I, I was part of that group. <laughs> and, and so I don't know if that meant something, but I, I've always liked playing with insects. Maybe a lot, all kids do. Maybe they don't all sort of progress to that level. Um, so I've been fascinated with them for a long time. But I think it's okay if you end up as an entomologist. It's only not okay when you end up like as something else. <laughs> yes, yes. If you start uh, doing things to vertebrates, then, then you're crossing yeah. lines. Or like, or like I'm a serial killer and it all started when I was torturing ants. It's it, very different than like... yeah. It led me down into the entomology. I hope path. so. That's what we tell people, at least. You know? My dad's a surgeon, and he was working on, you know, dissecting animals when he was a kid. And I think, had he not become a surgeon, that would have been like very atypical and worrisome. But but that's right. that he became a surgeon, it was a very reputable thing. And not Dexter, for example. Yeah, like exactly. Yeah. It's like the 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 end result. You know, it framed what what was being done earlier. Sure. So, cool. so so that sort of yeah, for me personally, that and sort of why study so you know insects more professionally, sort of a mm. serious level. Um, their <laughs> social insects are, for me, first of all, models uh, for understanding social behavior across the board because they have yeah. such amazing uh, social systems, and we can talk about that a little bit more later. And also, um, social insects are some of the most uh, invasive uh, species. They're some of the most damaging species. They're some mm. of the most important species for humans. You just start talking about honeybees, how important they are to us. There's all kinds of invasive uh, termites, wasps, ants that cause all kinds of problems. Anybody mm. living in the southeast of the United States will yeah. know about fire ants and people live across the world. Um, so there's a lot of reasons for studying social insects, I would say. And how, but how much can you generalize? Like if we if we understand um, honeybees or, or ants, yeah. like where where can we generalize and where do we not, where should we not? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think that uh, we have to be very careful with generalizing, especially when we're talking about um, ethical questions about, you know, we, we behave a certain way, uh, you know, because we've evolved to do this. And maybe the social insects have evolved to do similar things for similar reasons, but we don't have to, you know, do the same behaviors because we are intelligent and we, you know, we have humanity and we can think about things in certain ways. So I think there are places where you can generalize very broadly. We can say, okay, you know, social insects are nice to their kin because of, you know, certain processes that may well operate in humans as well. But that doesn't mean that we have to, you know, go out and kill all non-kin or something like that, uh, even though that's what an ant colony might do. Yeah. So I think we can learn from them, certainly, in a lot of ways, but we have to be clever about it. That's kind of interesting. Like, uh, I'm going to go a little sideways on this for a moment, but like, um, like ethics is the discussion that, that, that I have frequently because I'm in the field of artificial intelligence, and there's 
you know, uh, there's a big focus on, on, you know, right now the ethics of, of our society um, as AI is making decisions mm-hmm. for people being in the hands of a few, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and are we, are we institutionalizing bias? Are we, um, are we making decisions that are not explainable or transparent stuff like that? Right. Um, and, and what I've come to understand is that, that ethics um, is esoteric in, um, in the sense that you have to really operationalize it, to do anything about it. Um, and so I'm just wondering, as you're talking about like the ants killing off an entire colony, um, it just begs the interesting question of like, we have ethics, but, but really maybe that's human ethics. Um, and it's, it's a function of sort of what our society feels should be acceptable amongst us as a community, given our biology and our cultural norms. But like, I mean, are, are there then animal ethics? Like, is, is this kind of a weird thing to talk about? Sure. No, it's interesting. Uh, so I, I also am interested in ethics. Um, and I think there are people who would say that animals can't have ethics, that only humans have sort of ethical constructs. If they have such things, you have to have sort of a, a sense of uh, self that animals don't have. And you have to be able to think outside of yourself in a way that animals don't think can. And mm-hmm. so we certainly think about ethics towards animals, like how do we treat other animals? Yeah. But we wouldn't think... Or I don't think people would talk about like ants having an ethical system in that sense. Um, what happens is uh, I think sometimes people, and certainly in the past, have looked to uh, biological systems to inform us about ethical behaviors, which can be very dangerous. So um, you know, mm. this is social Darwinism and this kind of thing. While well, we see that there's you know mm. there's ants killing other ants and killing termites, therefore it's okay. To... Therefore it's okay if human societies do it, yeah. and that's that's not something certainly that we would say now. I think that. We can look to learn about, you know, biological systems elsewhere, and that can inform us about why we might be doing things, but it should not be why sort of, you know, we, we can think about things and we should think about mm. what it means to be human and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we talked briefly about that just before the show, about how, how there's there's social Darwinism in the past was used to justify bias and racism and, and other, you know, savages versus the, the civilized people and, and things like that. And it's, it's worth you know, sp- spending a minute on this, that a lot of ethical systems, especially classical eth- ethical systems, um, some, some non-theistic and some theistic ethical systems are based in looking at the outside world and saying, this is how the biological world is set up. Mm. This is how we should live, yeah. either explicitly or implicitly. That's actually a pretty, a pretty common thing. Um, and so that's, that seeps in. Uh, yeah. if, if, and you just got to be careful to always be thinking about things. Yeah, I so I, I I was thinking back to um to undergraduate I studied uh, anthropology and uh and I, I remember like looking at different societies and one of the, the things that I liked most about that was you don't know what's biological and what's cultural or, or or societal until you look at other groups who are have shared biology but mm-hmm. have entirely different norms and ethics and behaviors and and it was like just kind of like like the way you travel to another country and you're like oh now i see that that's an american thing and not that's a right. not a human thing right uh, it's the same idea it was like looking at these you know african tribes and then these these nordic tribes and then you know some south american tribes and you're, you're like oh that that's not human that's that's american or south south american or whatever you know looking looking across uh, different tribes or or cultures people do look for sort of the common ethical uh, principles and there there aren't many. There are some people would claim like do not kill. Mm-hmm. Um, incest turns out to be one that is is usually frowned upon. Um, and you know whether we can translate that to other animals, we see other animals sort of not doing that or sometimes doing that in different cases. And and you you, you can see real differences there as well. Yeah. 
uh, one thing uh, one thing that's weird is like as we become more connected and as as you know more people become aware of of others out there um you know we, we have more awareness of of the differences and it becomes easier to see those things um okay let me uh let me jump into um the the hard problems that you're facing in your in your field um i think this is a fun question to ask because we don't really know what's hard right and i think sometimes uh the answers are, are easier than asking the questions and so i'm I'm curious, like what when you look at sociality, when you look at how insects socialize or how people socialize, like what are the really hard questions that that researchers ask or or that we should be asking? So I, I think one thing that we're interested in is sort of why do certain species evolve complex social systems? Mm. So why are we, you know, the naked apes the way we are? Why are fire ants, you know, have su- such an incre- in complicated social system? What were the sort of pressures that caused this to happen. And uh, so that's that's one big question that's been driving people for a long time, again, why we're studying social insects. And it's interesting because complicated social systems have evolved multiple times within the insects, so yeah. multiple times independently. Yeah. And so that sort of tells us something uh, about the systems. Now I'll define complicated. Like the value that it, it brings to, to survival. Or... Yeah. And so what is it about this set of insects that, is, that has caused this to happen multiple times? Yeah. Um, there's other sorts of questions about the sort of molecular processes and developmental processes that lead to sociality. So here I'm going to sort of define sort of complex sociality a little bit, at least the way we think about it. So when we talk about, uh, for example, a honeybee colony, which some people are a little bit familiar with, what, what really makes uh, a social insect uh, highly social, the way we think about it, is that there is a division of individuals within the society. And some individuals reproduce and some do not. And that's a pretty hard and fast division. And it's that's like a, like a hardwired exactly. division. And that's really that's really what's so extraordinary about these groups. Yeah. So we think about humans, well, some folks reproduce and some don't, but everyone's reproductively capable, you know, yeah. in principle. Um, when we think about like uh, honeybees, you know, the queen reproduces and the workers do not, except in some minor instances. And the workers cannot ever ever possibly reproduce, you know, uh, other workers and or other females. I almost like want to anthropomorphize on that and imagine a bunch of workers sitting around the cooler just being like, you got no chance, man. It's you got no, no chance. It's never going to happen. It's never, exactly, exactly. And that does something. And that, that means that, that the way that those workers that can't reproduce, they have to find other outlets, as it were, for their fitness. Mm. And, the way, and so what happens is that there's sort of a feedback, we think, that the, the, the workers then can gain fitness not directly by producing their own offspring, but indirectly by mm. helping the queen or helping their reproductive sisters. And so this, this division of individuals into reproductives and non-reproductives is so weird because if you think about it, um, you know, you think about humans, for example, that we, we produce other individuals that look like us and they produce other individuals that look like, our, like you know, the parents, etc. But if you have a worker that is sterile, how does that reproduce itself? It never can. As, as the joke goes, um, if I don't have kids, neither will they. So how do you get this worker type always being produced? And actually Darwin actually worried about this. He thought he saw this. It didn't make any sense how you keep getting workers, even though the workers themselves never reproduce. Mm. And so there's an interesting molecular uh, system that has to underlie the whole caste system, as we call it, in social insects. And so that's really another interesting big problem. How do you get these different castes? What are the molecular pathways that give you something so different? Yeah. You know, a, a, a queen versus a worker. 
honeybee or a queen termite versus a worker termite when they look so different. Yeah. You know, they're, that you wouldn't even know they were the same species or order or whatever just by looking at them. From the outside. So, I mean, do they, like, phylogenetically, do they start off the same and, and they differentiate? Or? Yeah, so it's interesting. In terms of development, um, this is a changing story, which is very interesting. It, we believe most of the time an egg that is laid within, uh, for example, a honeybee colony has the potential to develop into either a queen or a worker. Hmm. So queens and workers, future queens and workers, are genetically identical. Mm-hmm. But basically, they experience different environments that causes some individuals to develop into queens and some to develop into workers. Wow. And so in the case of honeybees, the queens are fed royal jelly, as, as some people may call it. The workers are, are fed more worker jelly. Worker jelly. <laughs> yeah, it sounds delicious. Mm, worker jelly. Put that on your toast in the morning. Right? Very technical terminology. Yeah, it's like exactly. that long insect name that you had at the beginning, and then we go oh, yeah. on worker it, jelly. It, it, it gets very simple, right? It's not, as, it's not as delicious as it sounds either. Worker jelly. <laughs> you wouldn't want to eat it, I think. Um they're going to so, elect the uh, the Bernie Sanders of, of the bees. That's right. Well, that's right. So there's very interesting stuff about decision making as well. Um, and so there, there's we think that there's environmental, uh, a lot of it's environment that you experience that either you get fed something or you, 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 know, you experience certain temperatures mm. or something that leads to one, one group of individuals turning into reproductives and the other ones not. Wow. Now, having said that, there's more and more uh, uh, sort of studies coming out showing genetic influences on caste, mm. which means that some individuals are essentially genetically determined by their genotype to turn into a queen, whereas others are genetically determined to turn into a worker. How would that work, though, given that there's a single sort of clump of genetic code being passed down? I mean, do, do, is it, do you get like a partial set of, of the genetics then? Yeah, so these things happen um, in what we thought were very rare circumstances where you have sort of uh, queens and males being genetically different and they, the sperm and the eggs come together, and then depending on whether and how eggs are fertilized, they either get sort of the genetic complement that will turn them into workers or the genetic complement that will turn them into queens. And it's, and it's a, we thought it was a very, very strange circumstance. It, it's, when you see it, it's kind of crazy. Um, but it's, we're finding more and more of these situations where the queens are actually genetically differentiated from the workers. They have a very different genotype. And it's partially, sometimes you have clonal reproduction going on. Sometimes you have other kinds of things. Oh wow! It's totally crazy, and we yeah, I didn't even know it's like 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 just like going back like twenty plus years to my college biology. Like I, I didn't even know that was possible. No, it, it, it doesn't even seem possible. Exactly as you correctly said, how does this happen if you have, um, you know, the same genes that are being transmitted, and you have to have really really weird stuff going on? And and this again was found, um, you know, once people said, oh, this is crazy. We're not you're not going to see any more of that. But then. The more sort of genetics we do, uh, and we're, our genetic systems and uh, technologies are getting much better now, we're finding it more and more often huh. um, in sort of invasive, uh, certain invasive ants and, uh, and a few, uh, some termites. There's some kind of genetic determinations that are going on. It's, it's just showing up more and more than we thought. Is that, so like, is that, is that limited to, to insects? It sounds like that's the kind of thing that could exist across other species once you've established some pathway for it. Yeah, so it, with, with the insects... Um, Sort of well, clonal reproduction. If we're talking about that, is is pretty unusual. Um, in some insects, can do it. Some, and then there are other invertebrates uh, that do it in various cases. And some invertebrates do a lot. Mammalian systems. I have to think about it. If there's, yeah, there. Um, I'd have to think about it a little bit. But okay. in fish, I think there are things. There are strange genetic systems in fish. And yeah, a few other places. Yeah. Huh. So. Um, Right, that was that was I don't know, getting off of the molecular stuff. That's very <laughs> it's cool. Though. It's 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 really fascinating. So, 
on that note, like when 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 these these um, eggs or larvae or whatever are like differentiating, um, do they also then communicate amongst themselves? Like once a queen, you know, sort of initiates her queenness, does is there like a chemical communication to the other eggs to suppress the queenness? Because I would think that 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 initial process is going to be buggy. Like it's probabilistic, right? It's sure. not. A, it's not hundred percent black and white. Yeah. So, so that whole system is indeed very interesting. So again, I'll use an example of the honeybees where it's been sort of well studied. Um, the hun- new honeybee queens are sort of reared at special times of the year in specialized cells. Huh. And so there'll be a, a few dozen of these new queens potentially reared. And so what happens is that the, uh, these new queens are, are reared up and, uh, as they develop, yes, they are, they are recognized as future queens and, hmm. Um, they can be sensed by the workers and by other queens as future queens. And so much so, in fact, that um, what happens typically is the very first sort of new queen to emerge um, from her cell, when she sort of develops out, she's a new queen, the, very, the first thing that she does is she goes and tries to kill all her sister queens. That's so harsh. It's harsh. So yeah. she'll sting through the, the caps. She'll attack any other sort of new queens that are out there. Um, because even though they're her sister, they're also her competition. Huh. Which is something we don't think about. We think about social insect colonies yeah. being big, happy families. Everyone's happy. Well, it's a little bit like humans. More like maybe. very organized and structured. And very organized structure where everything may be laid yeah. out. This you know, only yeah. one queen produced and da 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 da. Okay. Um, but it's not. It's buggy, as you say. And in fact, there's competition among individuals. Violent, lethal competition among you individuals. Know, it, it's funny. Like I, I'm, I'm like I have these like computation on computational based analogies that I'm building in my mind as you're talking. Um, I guess partly just my worldview and like. I, I'm just thinking of like like if you're doing AI and you're trying to optimize some function that like it it's often the case that there's sort of like sub pieces that you're that you're like sub optimizing on and and this notion that you know you become the queen but now you're you have like an almost like a mini fitness function where you try right. like you're, you're additionally tested on your fitness because if you can't emerge and and show that you're stronger than all your sisters then like maybe you just should shouldn't perpetuate your genetics um or i don't want to say should but apply right. intentionality but, right right but you but won't you won't you won't yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's that's weird yeah, yeah. so there, there's interesting stuff that happens if you want to call it many functions that's happening sort of all the time within within colonies depending on this sort of system there's competition even between sometimes between the queens and the workers which mm-hmm. again do you think the workers are always helping the queens in there well sometimes they can come into competition over over producing males and we can go into details about that but uh um, so there, there, it's both a unified group, but at the same time, a competitive group. And this is, huh. this is always operating, you know, uh, all things are always happening, uh, in competition and cooperation at the same time. So I've seen some, some recent research around the intelligence of bees and, uh, and it blew my mind. Like I, I, so I, uh, I studied dolphins when mm-hmm. I was doing anthropology because I was focused on comparative cognition as, and sort of looked at how cognition varies across different species. And, um, and I, and so I have this interest in, and I was, thought that dolphins and humans were like the two groups of animals that that were capable of sort of doing symbolic mm. reasoning and and um and and language you know abstract mm-hmm. language um and and i saw that bees now um apparently are thought to be able to do that as well which puts them essentially like like unless i'm sure there's i'm sure there's some gray area but in my mind it's like humans dolphins and mm-hmm. bees and i was just like oh my god and so i mean how how smart are they like is is socialism sociality is it driving the intelligence or is the ability to be social um happening because there was intelligence or how, like how does that look yeah it's a really interesting question the way you put that i mean i think that some of what you're talking about we can talk about the bees again and some of what they do i think some of their incredible communication has been driven by their sociality so their ancestrally they were so, some kind of solitary bee 
that, you know, just got food on its own and sort of made a single small nest and provisioned, you know, a female that provisioned her own offspring and then died or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so they were fairly simple. But over the course of literally millions of years, which is how long these social systems have been around, way longer than humans. How old are these? Like, I don't even know. Uh, it's 100 million. I mean, social insects go back 200 million years. Wow. Um, so hundreds of millions of years. And again, humans, you know, human chimpanzee split is only like, I don't know what it is, they say three to five million years or so. So there were now. like millions and millions of years where like bees and similar animals may have been some of the smartest animals right. on Earth. Smart, I, I would be careful. I, I, uh, smart's an interesting word to use. I, I hear mean, you. Some bees are smarter than some people I know, maybe. But uh, <laughs> you know, as, as a, I, they, they're extremely sophisticated, certainly. Sophisticated. What they do. And so I, I think a good example of that is the, the dance language of honeybees. And so I, I can speak about that for you know a minute. So honeybees are one of the only other animals besides humans which are known to use symbolic communication. And so honeybees can actually tell uh, their hive mates, their sisters, where food is. And yeah. they do that um, using symbols. And they can essentially, by the way they move around the nest and they move, they waggle their butts and, and do a dance, um, they can basically say there's food 100 meters in this direction from this sort of, you know, go this direction from the sun and you'll find a nice patch of flowers. It's amazing. And that is truly amazing. It was such a, a crazy that yeah. you no know, one ever thought such a thing 50 years ago. I mean, I mean, I can't even do that. Like, uh, right, if, exactly. If, if my wife is like, where are the leftovers? I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. Somewhere, somewhere yeah. over there, I left them. All right, exactly, exactly. Um, so it, that's, that's spectacular. Uh, that's certainly spectacular. Yeah. And there are, you know, other insects can, you know, surprisingly, some ants can use uh, magnetic information of the earth to navigate. I've seen stuff like that. Or That's polarized light. Like or, fish, too, can, I think can do that as well. Uh, yeah, and, and some birds. And so it's all this crazy stuff that we're not attuned to yeah. and that other animals can use in ways that we never would have thought of. I think it actually begs the question of what telepathy really is. Like, I, you know, I, I, have, a, I have a six-year-old. And so, of course, there's lots of questions about the nature of the world. And um, we, we were reading some stuff about... Um, ancient Roman towns yesterday. He's, he's a diverse interest kid. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, and we talked about soothsayers, right. people that are telling you the, the future or the truth. And so, so he's very interested in that. And he was trying to, in his own mind, figure out whether this was possible or whether it was just myth, right? And I don't want to crush his, his exploration <laughs> of it. So I left it ambiguous so he could think about it. Right. Um, and, and, in, and in talking about the, the future, like it's interesting because, because it's like in that, in that way, we kind of define this this mystical thing like telepathy or 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 you know predicting the future, but there there may be some real basis for it, right? And so like um, I'm thinking about fish in particular. Like I read that some fish can communicate electrically, and so there's some fish that when they're in near proximity, they can generate generate sort of powerful electrical signals in their in their brain, which is close to the water, and then that can be sensed by the other fish, and then they can interpret the signals. It's kind of like Wi-Fi for fish underwater, like organic Wi-Fi. Um, but like we might call that telepathy. Like we a hundred years ago, we would have, or two maybe two hundred years ago, we would have called it telepathy if we had known what the fish were thinking. Um, that's and, interesting. I, I had not heard that. That's very interesting. That's very interesting. The bees kind of, kind of maybe like similarly could be thought of that way if we don't understand the mechanisms that are being used to well that's a good point so if we didn't yeah. if we we just saw bees and people did see this sort of bees all just going out to the same place magically. finding food magically then yeah you might wonder how are they doing that and it turns out they are communicating in some way that yeah. eventually we're able to figure out or with the fish yeah um, but if you can't figure it out then it becomes magic so maybe when we get like our brain implants in like 50 right. years and like and we just are sitting in the room and like communicating wirelessly with our brain implants like We'll seem to tell. We'll seem as if we're um, speaking 
telepathically, you know, when aliens come to Earth, they'll be like, those humans, they just, they don't even, they don't even have words. They just communicate. Yeah, so thoughts. interesting. Let's kill them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for your planet. Right. Um, okay, so as, as we talk about this in, in insects, um, how, how can we, how can we uh, take these lessons and, and apply them? So like what? What can we what can we do with this research? Even if it's beyond the scope of sort of like the lab research, what what, what happens with this information as we go forward? Yeah, so I'll tell you about some examples uh, in a different direction. So um, I've been doing some work with another colleague here on campus, Dan Goldman, who's a physicist who does outstanding work in how in physics the physics of movement and organization. And something uh, that's become interesting is how, for example, ants move around within a nest. So if we think about an ant nest. Um, it might have like a million individuals in it. And the question is, how the heck does traffic happen in there? You just imagine, you know, a million individuals all in the same space just trying to get around. And this has real uh, real questions, right? So if we think about uh, problems during emergency exits, like if there's a fire or something and there's a concert and then everyone goes yeah. for the exit and you get catastrophic jams that leads to terrible fatalities. And uh, so so something that, that we've been thinking about is how do, how do ants do it, right? There are so many more of them. Um, they, I feel like there's a pun coming here. Is, oh, is that right? I, I feel like some fire ants or something. Or I'll, I'll try to get there. I don't know. I don't know. We'll, <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see where we go. We'll see where we go. Um, uh, so the so with these insects, for example, it, some people have done experiments, and it seems like you can't get them to sort of catastrophically jam, even when they're like totally freaked out. Wow. And you, you do stuff, and uh, they will never become so freaked out that they all sort of just form a bunch and just sort of catastrophic. So That's how do amazing. they do that? How do they do that? Right. Yeah. If we knew that, um, that would be uh, that would be sort of useful to know. Yeah. Um, and there's also some structural issues with the nest. So studying the structural of the nest, how is it set up to be efficient, but not too efficient? So how so you make the for example the path big enough so that you can go through, but not so big that mm-hmm. it takes a lot of time to to sort of make. And this has potentially even applications uh, when we think about the applications of social insects to other things. Um, something that people are interested in are social robotics. Right. So can we have teams of robots doing things for us, whether it's search and rescue or, you know, discovery or military applications or whatever? How do such things work together? How do social insects work together? How do they tell each other that there's food? How do you build something, you know, like a nest if you can't, there's no master yeah. plan or there's no blueprint? How do how you, you get something that's, you know. So how could you how could you set up these 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 local local decision makers in a way that that the the way they make decisions creates some emergent behavior that that implies some kind of coordination or some kind of centralized goal, but it's but all the all the decision making is happening exactly locally. exactly yeah. so that's one of the really interesting things is that again there, it's not like the queen tells yeah. the workers how to build a nest at all the workers do stuff that leads to the building of a nest so they have these local decisions exactly as you said yeah that uh, like a decision might be if I find a pebble if I'm an ant pick it up. And if I hit another pebble, put it down. Yeah. And it turns out if you have that kind of simple system, it leads to the formation of walls. Yeah. Just just from that kind of thing. So how does that work? And how can we use that in terms of uh, human function? Yeah. People also study, you know, social insect nests as sort of efficient domiciles. So, you know, these nests that are in Africa that, uh, that are 20 feet tall and yet can sort of vent carbon dioxide. Well, how does that happen? You know, and People have actually built buildings around the idea of social insect nests. So some structural design structural around design. like how, how could this building get cleared quickly in an emergency or how could we make efficient use of, of HVAC or, or, or building controls or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. By it. Exactly. 
And so people people look again to be inspired by these biological systems, if you will. Um, and then we also uh, look to ourselves, uh, you know, look at our own societies. Can we learn something about the way we behave towards each other uh, by studying how these social insects do? So, um, you know, there's there's some interesting reports if you look, for example, in humans at uh, at homicide rates to talk about something particularly uh, unnerving. If you sort of just look at, at the frequency of homicides within families, um, it turns out that sort of violence is directed a lot more often at non-kin rather than kin. So spouses who you're not related to, they're your spouse, but you're not related to them, or children who you're not related to, stepchildren, for example, violence is directed at them a lot more often. And that, I, I would say, that is consistent with sort of kin-selective behaviors that we might see in social insects. Doesn't mean we should do it, to be clear, but there's sort of stuff that we can learn. There's a about. biological basis. There could for be a biological basis. For protecting to, your own. For protecting your own and not protecting the other. Yeah. The um, problem though is that your own is it has levels of, of abstraction to it, right? Absolutely. So it's family and then city and then country and then gender or race or political viewpoint or religious viewpoint. It's sort of like that's right. That's right. And yeah. what does that mean? Where does that come from? And why does that happen? And you know, is it good? Quote unquote. That's when you get into ethical questions. Yeah. Or is it not good? Uh, yeah, that's it's kind of weird because there's like these these behaviors we have that have evolved, which means that they conveyed fitness potentially. Or I mean, you would you would assume they they conveyed fitness, or they just kind of at least didn't detract from your fitness over time, and then they were there. But then in our modern society, you know, they're detrimental because um, maybe they were maybe they were suboptimal, but but still had fitness over the alternative or something. Mm-hmm. And now we're progressing into a more optimal solution that. It goes against our biology or against our genetics, maybe. Right, and that's a, that's well put. So we think about, you know, it, it was probably... I it, just made that up. I don't know. It's, it's beautiful. You're ready, to teach, <laughs> you're ready to teach my class. I'm going to call you as a guest lecturer. Yeah, this is great. Um, exactly. So you think about, you know, again, be, be kind to your kin, to those around you. Mm-hmm. Be good to them because they share your genes. That's kind of a, a, a blueprint of kin selection. Um, that's That works, and that's a way to increase your fitness, to increase your representation of your genes. But that, uh, at some points, you know, that that's not good for everybody. You know, it's not good for the people who are not like you. Yeah. Um, and that's where, again, we have to think ethically and not just do what our yeah. biology tells us to do. Is that, I mean, so you have the biological evolution and you have the genetic evolution that causes us to do things like, do things like view the other into, into, or to be violent against the other. But I mean, do we also then have the evolution of our social constructs and our government constructs and our societal constructs so that, that those potentially could be, you know, more optimal. I'm kind of restating what I said a minute ago, but I'm just thinking about like, there's really almost like two speeds of evolution. There's like, there's like the society level evolution that isn't really us, but it's like the the knowledge and the constructs mm-hmm. we carry forward. And, and if those outperform, right, in some ways, our biological or genetic constructs, like, that's where it's really hard for us to, to let go of those things. So, um, so yeah, I'll put words in your mouth a little bit. I mean, it yeah, sounds like, do. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, that's great. That's what good words, I'm by struggling, the way. so I need some more. <laughs> um, so it sounds like, when, you know, when we talk about, uh, when a biologist talks about evolution, they're talking about the transmission of genes, you know, and, and how those get changed in frequency, and it's a very mm-hmm. biological definition. What you're talking about, I think, a little bit is cultural evolution. So you have these two things potentially competing and interacting. We do have, you know, cultural evolution uh, happening. Um, and how does that interact with our biological evolution is a really good question that people are trying to figure out. Um, why do we do, why are certain things, you know, why do we do certain things? Does it have any effect on fitness? How, if it does have effects on fitness, how does that interact our biological evolution? 
Um, how does that go back and forth? And there are some people thinking about that. Can I make this political for a minute? Like, sure, I, I won't get you in trouble. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we'll, we'll keep it clean. But like, yeah. I'm just thinking about. I watched the debate last night. Did you? Uh, did I did you? not see it. I okay. See it. So I watched the debate last night, and um, and it's painful to watch these debates. Yeah. There's there's a lot of the other happening. Um, mm. amongst the 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 candidates debating and amongst the, the other the other parties and, and, and viewpoints. Um, but uh, I'm just thinking about like how how I'm thinking like if there's, if there's a way to like frame the way that that our political system is is unfolding in these contexts because because like there definitely is you know. Um, like there's definitely like on the on the democratic side there's there's like the embrace the world there is mm. there is no other we're all one kind of mentality and on the on the republican conservative side it's like you know America first make America great and I'm not I'm not I don't want to judge and say that one is better than the other but but it's like there's these two different um, viewpoints and and they're polarizing people to one side or the other and um it's just like fascinating to think about it in that context because because they're both still agreeing about the other. I mean, it's not that the Democrats are saying there isn't another. Um, mm. So they're both kind of adhering to that construct, but but it seems like one group is willing to not have that 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 notion of us versus them as much. Um, well, I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think you know, in terms of that, there there is that, and there's there's always been that in all sort of things that again, a cultural de- a country is a cultural thing, right? It's not a biological thing. Right. It's something that we humans created culturally. It doesn't have a bio- doesn't have biological meaning. Right. Right. Um, and so there's there's always in every every place that I've ever been, certainly there's always sort of this uh, tension between us and them. I think most people fall in, despite the extreme polarization of the political parties, I think most people fall in the middle. There's, there's a recognition, right, of their their we we are a country and that means something. And so, yeah. how do you deal with that? But you want to at the same yeah. time be kind yeah. to the other. Yeah. Um. And so, how do you deal with that? And it's and politically, it's it has become a this or that, mm-hmm. and I, maybe that's making people think more and more of this or that. That's a false. I mean, yeah, that no, that this or that. I think you said it well. It, it's a false delineation, like. It's it's like it's like a system. I think it's like a system dynamics problem. Like the equilibrium space is where like fifty percent of the population votes for one party and fifty percent votes for the other because each party is always trying to occupy fifty percent mm-hmm. and they're willing to totally shift positions to make sure that they maintain that equilibrium. And so you get all these weird like artificial situations where you know they're 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 adopting views that that like incrementally add some more more votes. It's it's really. <laughs> Interesting thought. Interesting thought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, so let's put on our futurism hat, and uh, I want to ask you. Um, you know, in the future, um, we're going to be building tech that is going to be affecting how we socialize and how we build our, our constructs around our societies. Uh, we're doing it now, like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, you know, WeChat. Um, these are all things that we've built to enable or 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 hinder our ability to socialize in different ways, and we're building constructs of how we socialize, right? Mm-hmm. Like Tinder. Mm-hmm. I, I'm too old to have used Tinder, but oh, like yeah. I get how it works, right? You kind of swipe to one side or the other, like that creates a social construct that didn't really exist. Like how do we, how do we leverage our understanding of, of how we can best act or how we are biologically enabled um, to act socially? How do, how does this, how does this interfere with like, uh, or enable like the technologies? Like, like are we going to at some point understand this so well that, like it informs our technology building or, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I don't know. Again, your futurism hat is a good way to put it. I'm not sure how that will work. I mean, certainly there are people who worry a lot that the kinds of technology we're doing now 
is not compatible with you know our, our social system we evolved and in social groups where you saw individuals and you ate with them or whatever and now we're not and we're we're becoming isolated in certain ways even though we're connected in some ways obviously incredibly connected in some ways but very isolated in other ways um and so you know again it, how does how do we get informed about that using our evolutionary biology we can say this is not the way we evolved and so we there might be weird things that happen and uh, and there are people who talk about these things happening in, in young kids today you know higher rates of depression and other kinds of things that may be associated yeah. again i that's not i don't think it's been shown for sure it's a hypothesis um that could be associated with the way that we're disconnecting ourselves in certain ways maybe you need to give like uh like like social media to bees and see how it affects that's right they would just uh, they'd eat it or destroy it or something <laughs> that, that's how i feel too i'm an I'm a anti-tech guy overall i try to be anyways you try to be anti-tech yeah i'm not a huge i mean i'm old now and so you know new things i don't like new things you okay. know and okay. so uh uh, I, I reluctantly have a smartphone uh, and that kind of thing. Okay. But uh, I, I'm not into the, the tech stuff, and I don't have a great desire to, to get into it. Yeah, that's but, interesting. Yeah, I mean, you're right about the studies. There are studies that do show that happiness goes down in some ways when you have tech. But then, like, to your social groups, like, I mean, I, I so I'm not on Facebook very frequently. Um, I used to be, but I've kind of stopped going on Facebook frequently. But, but like, I'm on Reddit a lot, and mm-hmm. I'm on LinkedIn a lot, and mm-hmm. And there is like almost like this social group yeah. creation on those sites. And uh, I wonder if, if almost like successful tech uh, is the tech that either through intuition or luck or good design kind of just aligns against our, our biology, our, our sociality, um, even if we don't fully understand it well. I think that's probably uh, there's some truth to that. I mean, certainly people will use things that, well, makes them happy. I don't know if that's the right word, but they'll, <laughs> they'll use things that they can use and that they think makes them happy. Yeah, it's uh, like. Happy as in like going to Vegas and, and gambling. Right, happy. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine staying away from that. I haven't been on Facebook in ages. Every time I go on Facebook, I just get depressed. I don't know why. I, I understand what people say that it's all it's all sort of about, uh, I don't know, you're showing, it's all kind of f- fake, fake news a little bit, if I can use that word a little bit. And, and uh, So I go on and then I'm like, oh, this is awful. I'm going to have a drink. I can't get away what, from this. What is it that makes you feel that way? Is it, is it seeing like, the full spectrum of everybody's stuff all at once and kind of like not I, I think it's seeing the I, I think it's seeing everybody's highlights yeah I think it's whatever or yeah. the supposed highlights or whatever yeah. it is that's what everyone does what I do I mean my yeah. web you know my web page is the highlights of you know, or whatever and uh, I get that of course um, you know when you show photos to people you want to be highlights but it's it's an incomplete view of life and it's one that can if uh, that if you compare yourself to I think as many people would say, that you're never going to live up to it or Absolutely. whatever. And it's like, oh, this is, this is in the end, this is awful. I'm just going to go uh, no, I, know, and do something else. I, I agree. That's partly why I got off Facebook as well, too. Cause I, I just, and also partly why I stopped posting. Cause I was mm-hmm. like, I don't like, I, we just took this amazing vacation and I can post photos of it. But if I do that, like, how is that going to make other people feel? I don't, I don't like, I don't want to be the person Right. Posting that because I'm not going to tell somebody about the time that I suffered for some reason. Right, and you should. So you make a commitment. You're going to take two photos. One photo will be great. <laughs> the other one will be you, yeah. you know, throwing up in the bathroom because yeah. you got food poisoning Here's on your vacation. Sick all weekend. Some people you know. sort of can see the full, uh, and people will, I'm sure you get a lot of hits with that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's fair. I guess if you wanted to be like a like a social media influencer or something, like you would you maybe post that full that's that right. full spectrum. I don't know. So okay, well. Um, this has been a lot of fun, Mike, and uh, I, I really appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I, I told you before, I want to diversify outside of AI. So to anyone listening who thinks I have an AI podcast, let this be the, the first or second or third shot over the bow. 
Um, no, but I, I really, I really love the science and I, I wanted to have this conversation. And I think it is really relevant to how we live our lives and how our society is changing. Um, and everyone should know about, you know, these, these kind of, these, these like foundational areas that, that people like you are studying. So thanks for coming on the show. Thanks. It's been a great pleasure. Really enjoyed talking with you. Look forward to hearing more. Awesome. I appreciate it. So guys, as uh, that wraps things up for today, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, check out our back catalog. We've got a lot of interesting stuff. And uh, subscribe and like, and uh, we'll talk to you later. Take care.